everybody, this is Mick Mars, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with musician Mick Mars about classic horror, creating your own sound as a guitar player, the supernatural, new music, Motley Crue, and more. As always, thank you for listening out there, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, if you're interested in video, I've recently started posting the video to YouTube. You can find us on there by searching Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper, here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> So, Mick, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Mostly, I just love music. I'm not a very... I don't read much. <laughs> right, right. So, my vocabulary is kind of limited, but I don't think my music is. Oh, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can go anywhere with that stuff. Were either your parents musically inclined? You think that's where your roots came from? My father was always wanting to play guitar but he didn't have the patience for it you know and there was like five of us he had to take care of it and stuff so not much time for him really here here's a good story for you i think it was like my great uncle he was a violin teacher in indiana right where i was born right he would give violin lessons you know all you know in huntington one day he was going back home or to a a thing I'm still unclear of that. My grandmother, of course, he got he got hit by a train. Shit. So it's like that's the only other musician in my family that I can really remember, as far as like you know being a teacher and and showing and and things like that. So well, at least it went better for you. Oh yeah. <laughs> so far. <laughs> No trains. <laughs> no trains. So you said you grew up in Illinois. Did you spend most of your childhood there? Did you move around a lot or anything? There was a lot of moving. And, you know, when I was like a little guy in Indiana, it's just the way it is, I guess. When back back in, you know, post-war days, a long time ago. <laughs> so, Mick, what about when you think to uh, maybe formative films and TV shows you grew up on, what pops in your head? Oh, good Lord. All the cartoons, you know. <laughs> Of course. All the Three Stooges, of course. Of course, monster movies I have to watch, you know, like uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. and Classic. Uh, and when he's, you know, gets trapped in that stuff and Wolfman with uh, Lone Chaney Jr., Frankenstein, all, all, that, all that kind of stuff is, you know, what I love. The monsters were like cool then. Yeah. You know, and I watched, <laughs> I was probably maybe still in my single digit numbers, you know, of course, but, and I watched, uh, invaders from mars i could see the zipper on the back of the 
on top of the invaders, right? So it was, it was, it was pretty cool. I, I just love that kind of nostalgic stuff. I had a magazine that, that I would get, uh, you know, a little thin one. Mm. And it was like Monster Magazine. And it had like the alligator man, you know, Lon <laughs> Chaney again, you know, and stuff like that. I, I just love that stuff. What records were spinning around the house while you were growing up? I liked a lot of surf music back then. You know, that was in the pre-Beatle days. Uh, the Beatles came along and, and changed things for me. I mean, I was loving, like, The Ventures, and Dick Dale was my buddy when I, when I, I mean, before he passed away. So, that you know, that kind of stuff is, you know, Beatles came along and Stones came along, and I'm going like, whoa, my whole direction of thinking, you know, that went completely, like I say, different direction. Yeah. You know? Good, you know, I was going like growing, retaining that. Then I ran into the blues, and that was like a lot of guitar playing and jazz stuff, like Wes Montgomery, Cal T. Jader, some of those guys like that. And I listened to that stuff for quite a while, you know. So it's like just learning and retaining and trying to, you know, keep it saving. Yeah, <laughs> keep it. <laughs> so uh, this is something I like to ask everyone, just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? The King Kong movie. I can the, see the, it. <laughs> 1931 was like when the, an unlikely place for a brontosaurus, but you know when they came out of the water and and started chewing up the men, and their arms were like coming off and stuff, is what I remember. And that was like a, a little bit of, it scared, you know. <laughs> but I was like six or five years old or something, you know. Yeah, that was pretty scary. And my parents usually didn't let me stay up that that late, you know, but it was. Luckily, my uncle was over, and <laughs> I got to stay up and watch it. But it's like, yeah, that that one was like, wow. Were you big on going to the drive-in or anything back in the day? Oh yeah, my parents were taking me. And, uh, what was the one we saw? Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Yeah, that one. I think is that the one where the monster came out of the out of this egg that they found in Italy, and he, every time he would breathe, he'd get bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And he fought with the elephant and mashed him on the coin. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a classic that's one. That's all good stuff. I don't know, just stuff like that. Uh, let me see what some of the, the calmer ones. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Things like that. Most Mostly on TV stuff, but, you know. And I saw Gorgo at, at, at a theater, too. Gorgo was, like, a little disappointing, but, you know. Twilight Zone kid, too? Oh, man, yeah. And uh, there was one back in the 50s called One Step Beyond that had uh, other weird things, kind of in the same vein as Twilight Zone, you know, kind of fictitious things. But I don't, I don't remember what it's called, but how, how somebody can get like this thing and just start writing out real fast in some kind of language that's unknown. Yeah. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly like, what you're talking about. Yeah. That, that's like One Step Beyond was. I think that Rod Serling was more hitting on i think personally what he would he see or what could be in the future the devil that would play the the little uh those little role things for the player piano and it was about people and they would cry and this that and the other but the other guy the devil would laugh until Mm -hmm. they got him yeah like that that taught me about narcissism you laugh at that stuff then you know it's things like that, you know. It, it, science fiction, mm, I don't know. I, I mean, it's, how did he know that? <laughs> you know, it's science fiction until it's science fact, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool when you look at it. You know, for my money, 
Sterling's probably the greatest television writer of all time. I don't know if you watched The Night Gallery. But that was the, the show he had after The Twilight Zone. And I was probably... Came out in 69, I believe. I, I remember I remember this show, but I don't know how much that I watched it. I can't really remember where I would be because I don't remember. You know, like when I was like 16 years old, I was already out on my own. Yeah. yeah. Doing stuff, running around. and. So what was your first job? I can only remember really three real jobs I had, which was uh, I worked at a, an industrial laundromat that does, like you know, like gasoline guys throwing their dirty clothes and stuff like that to have them washed and pressed and clean and all that. And I had worked there in the extractor, which is, you know, that wrings the, all the water out of the clothes, 600 pound tubs. So I'd have to like get all that stuff out and put it in, in another tub. No, no, no. It was like I reel up the tub when it was with, with the cable. To make it short, I swung back this tub and it came back on my hand. I went, I'm done. <laughs> I never went back. Uh, another one I had was making soap. It, it was, again, you know, industrial kind of software. Again, gas stations, that you, they scrubbed the oil off their floor and all that kind of stuff. The lye started burning my hands. Fuck. Right? So I went like, okay. <laughs> and the last one that I had was working at motorcycle repair shop. They're repairing British bikes, the old Nortons, the old Triumphs, the old Aerials, all those, all those old motorcycles. That was pretty fun. Reason I left that one is like I got an offer to play in a band, and you know that means that guitar playing over everything else. So you know? w when did you first pick up the guitar? How early on are we talking? I mean, my first guitar was just a toy, really, and it was like maybe when I was four. One of those Mickey Mouse guitars that had the little winder on it. You know the yeah, <laughs> but I I learned to tune it my way and learn how to play songs on it. Just melodies. I can't remember his his name right now. Eddie Eddie something. He did all those beach movies with Annette Funicello and stuff. So I learned how to play those. Just I mean just the melodies of them. I don't know. The, I guess the first real guitar I got was just an acoustic old Stella when I was 12, started goofing around on that. And after that, I, my aunt was very impressed by my, by my playing, you know. So she bought me my first guitar, which was a, an early Les, Les Paul, right? And back then, a Les Paul Jr., like Leslie West uses, $98. Damn. I know, huh? I wish I still had it, but I don't. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, that was my next question. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had it still. I just kept, you know, going and going and going and, and trying to do stuff. And at about that time, I was maybe 15 or 14, 15, somewhere around there. And I was like learning blues stuff and Paul Butterfield and uh, Charlie Musselwhite and some of those guys. It's a long time ago. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to try and figure out which was the right dates. But I remember being in, I think, the eighth grade. I was like 14. I had a, an old K guitar and no pickups, no knobs, no strings, no bridge, no anything. So I got a set of strings <laughs> and I used for a bridge, honest, I'm not fibbing on this. I used a Swiss army knife for a bridge. Holy shit. Perfectly. 
So there's 101,000 for the Swiss Army Knife. You really can use it for anything. And I, and I played in a, a talent show in junior high school, which is when I went to Warner Junior High in Westminster, right, California. And I played a song I wrote, and I called it Conflict. And I didn't know what conflict meant then. <laughs> but I do now, but it was <laughs> definitely a conflict. <laughs> So that talent show, was that your first time on stage playing in front of people? Yes, absolutely it was. Were you terrified? <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. And I had a little teeny tiny Princeton amp. And the guitar and the amp belonged to my cousin. Right? So I borrowed them and played this talent show. Oh, my God. It was disastrous. But, you know, being that age and playing in front of your whole class, you know. Yeah, I could, yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the whole seventh and eighth grade. That's a nightmare. So, you know, a little amp that's like two watts ain't going to go very loud. And no. it's going to sound like crap. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know it, you know. Past that talent show, did you ever have to deal with stage fright once you get rolling? Did you ever have to overcome it? Not after that. It was like, no. I, I never had any problems like that at all. First time, but after that, no. I don't know why. I just wanted to play. I wanted to share what I can do. I think they were scared of more of me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, no, I, 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 I didn't get like you know the no, no, none of the shakes and none of the stomach aches or any kind of thing. At what point would you say that? Well, maybe you start taking music more seriously, and you start to maybe think, you know, I could do this for a career potentially. Really, really honest, honestly, about when I saw Hard Day's Night when it came out. 64 was it i must have been 13 14 somewhere i was just going i'm doing that <laughs> well actually, i did it a lot earlier you know when i saw a country western guy again in huntington skeeter bond he like kicked it off for me but when i felt like i could really do something was you know after i saw that and i went like someday somebody's going to hear me on the radio and in movies and so on like that and i really 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 thought about that like all the time but yeah i said that to myself and i kept it going well here, here's one about my mother right you know being at home and stuff and i told my mother i go i'm not going to go to a job that's you know back then you know it pays a hundred dollars a week or whatever i want to make millions and her eyeballs got so big she goes my name is Robert, right? So she goes, Bobby. And I go like, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm sure oh, she was happy about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mick, recently I was talking with uh, Marty Friedman, and I was asking him about, you know, how do you progress on guitar beyond learning your favorite licks early on or maybe learning what your guitar teacher knows? Uh, how do you develop your own sound and artistry with the guitar? It might be a little hard for me to explain. I hear stuff in my head that take it and then I have to learn it on my guitar. And then I put it down on like a, well now Pro Tools, but back in the old days, you know, tape and shit. <laughs> I, would, I would listen to it back, right? Not immediately, but a day or so later and go like, Mm, it stinks. <laughs> Get rid of it, or go like, oh, that part's really good. Or you know, that that's kind of how I work. Like, and if I hear something that goes flows really well, and if I chop it up and put it in different 
spots like kind of arrange it better then i can go like i might have something here but mostly that's how i do things you know did you ever have uh formal lessons or anything like that or you just self-taught all the way through self-taught can't read a note (laughs) (laughs) probably i should but i don't know i'm too old now it worked out fine for you i'm set (laughs) (laughs) so uh mick if you don't mind say someone out there is listening to this has been in a coma or living under a rock for 40 years can you just take us through how you meet with the motley crew guys and how you guys get it off the ground initially well if you saw the movie that's pretty close i was playing in a stinking cover band not making any money sleeping on a floor behind my marshall stack i'd put my name in a magazine called recycler in la and i put loud rude aggressive guitar player available nikki called me and so i go like okay went up there let me go let me go back a step or two okay no problem i had a guy that believed in me uh, i mean like a lot that he wanted to invest a large lump of money into me they said, well wait i don't have like let me find some real people this is a cover <laughs> when i met nikki and i went up there and i went cool cool and heard tommy and i'm like yeah that's great and we started playing us three and it sounded pretty good you know three-piece band it's going like yeah this is right this feels right that's when nikki had this guy singing first and which i go like don't really like hit well he had a good voice but not the voice for motley you know and i was going i'll have to step back again us three went down and saw vince with his band rock candy and after i had told tommy at a rehearsal with the other singer that i don't dig you know so nikki came out and tommy goes mick don't dig this this thing i go no i want that other little kid that was all <laughs> white and i go sex sells and did you see all the girls at him you know and it's like yeah well you know and, and tommy knew vince so he brought him in and it was an instant click and that's when uh i brought in the backer and i came with the name molly crew because i've saving that name for me so when i met i got i go i have to have the right guys before i let that go and that's stemming from 1977 and i you know wrote all my thoughts and stuff down he wanted to call the band christmas and i went how about molly crew <laughs> christmas yeah christmas <laughs> went, no <laughs> and molly crew and i and i had the backer enough to push the band and and get the 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 hype going and get all the i don't want to sound like an egomaniac but when we were together the name and the sound we were putting out then in 80 81 was totally different than the sunset strip sound we were the new kids on the block i guess right a lot changed from there and uh long story short we made or wrote enough songs to record an album. The first guy that recorded it did a crap job. He didn't know what he was doing. I, I'd known this guy, Michael Wagner, who had been producing all the stuff with Except. And so I knew that he was good. And when I met him through Dawkin, Don Dawkin, him and Udo, <laughs> uh, I said, hey, I got this guy, uh, Michael Wagner. So he came down and fixed up the album the best he could by 
you know, pumping it through other things and re-EQing it and redoing all this other stuff. It was a mess until he got a hold of it. <laughs> um, it turned out really, really good for what was recorded by the other. I mean, it's still a lot of people prefer that leather record over the Electra record. Still, RTB, Ray Thomas Baker, of course, had to still work with those tapes. You know? Right. He didn't re-record again, you know. You know, when Shout of the Devil came out, that was uh, another step. <laughs> so, Mick, when you guys, you know, you finally decide on who's in the band and you guys start recording, is there an aha, eureka moment you can point to to where you realize that you'd finally made it? Maybe a certain show that you were at or something? There was a show that we had at the Whiskey, the very first show we had at the Whiskey. And a few years earlier, I'd known Van Halen and Ed for years before that. We played at the Whiskey and... People were downstairs, you know, of course, in that little gallery down there, going, crew, 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 right? And I thought they were saying, boo. <laughs> and then our manager at that time goes, no, they're not saying boo, they're saying crew. And so we went down and played and stuff. And it was like, that was the first real positive thing that like, I'm doing this. When I would go down Sunset Strip when I was, there was the birds those guys are bands and stuff like that and it's like this is crazy i'm playing at the same place that the birds played you know and, and these guys play and it's, it was pretty cool so back in those days the early years what would a typical songwriting session look like for you guys it'd be pretty much nikki would bring in an idea and we'd finish it up mm. i would bring in an idea and the same we just sat around and played around with it until we got it how we felt it should be we started like Livewire. I think Livewire was our first real, true song. I mean, there was other ones too, but you know, that was the first song that people went like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> and we played at the Us Festival with that. People, uh, well, how many? I don't know, 300,000 people or more? I don't know, but it was big. No, not at the Us Festival. But, uh, yeah, was it the Us? No, it was at, yeah. It was the Us Festival, three. Correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Mick. I spoke with uh, Klaus Mina of uh, Scorpions recently. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. And he was saying that uh, you guys were, it was you guys and I think Ozzy and maybe a few others that were mm -hmm. with them on that uh, first, those first shows in Moscow after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I believe it was. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And what do you remember about that? Because that's pretty, like, a historically significant event. It was. All, all the bands, well, Doc McGee put all this stuff together, manager of KISS now. He managed us at the time, but he set that all up and got all that going. When the wall comes down, it's, like, all open and stuff. And, and I don't think that that arena or, or whatever it was that, you know, where they held the Olympics was the first time it was reopened again in a long time, you know, quite a long time. I don't remember how many years, but it was, they reopened for that. Kind of like, you know, not not surreal, but going like, look at all, that's crazy, you know, it's like, and that feeling of playing with, I mean, we, we did a tour with Ozzy, of course, before that, but like seeing some of the other bands, like, you know, Scorps and I don't know how many all bands were there. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> A lot of them, yeah. I still got the poster from that, by the way. Oh, that's you cool. Know? Yeah, it's really cool. I remember I was the only guy that played a guitar solos <laughs> in that whole thing. <laughs> the only one. And uh, actually, Steve Vai came up to me and, and told me that. He goes like, hey, you were the only guy that played a solo there. And I went, 
I am because I didn't see the whole thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was, was kind of cool, you know, just to go. Okay. Just while we're talking about live, so out of all the Motley songs, Mick, what would you say is the most difficult to perform live? Not not really any of them, because they were pretty simple songs, and and it's like at that time we were thinking, you know, of, of uh, the listeners and who, what area or category of you know fans or buyers or whatever of the album would be and we're like thinking you know like teenage up to like maybe 20 or 25 whatever in that kind of an area so it's like uh i don't think people that age would be listening to like king crimson or general giant (laughs) i did but (laughs) but you know it's like that kind of of a feel or thing or songwriting which we was more into uh, simplicity and you know that kind. So Mick, with your new material, your solo stuff, how was it for you, creative-wise? You know, you've been in a group setting so long, you kind of work off each other. Now it's just you, no one else to answer to, no other decisions. How was that for you? I got to leave a lot of things out of my what I'm hearing in my head of how I wanted me to sound at this time. But I've been thinking about, you know, like I say, not not really a progressive kind of a thing and not I wanted to go somewhere else because I learned all I could learn. I had all these things running around in my head and and I still got so much stuff up in there, <laughs> but even even as a gizzard, but it's OK. <laughs> but yeah, it was cool to be able to go like hear that, like just not just in my head, like there it is you know and i'm seeing seeing the waves on pro tools and seeing all the uh, listening to the music listening to the music uh, mixes and all that stuff you know and i'm pretty happy with the way that the the music has turned out but i still have others i need to take one more step and i know it and i can feel it and it's more closely what i'm thinking now is more closely related to like a song of the current album, Undone, that song, more like in that way, or Killing Breed, more that. But of course, the big crunch songs too, like Loyal to the Lie, you know, those are important to me too. You know, a little more, I, I don't know, wherever mm. it goes, I have I have to, I have to, yeah. I have to next step, you know. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I think every musician thinks that way though, pretty much just like, well, I've been there and done that. It's next. So, are you running the uh, the same rig, same uh, amp and guitar setup that you have been using for years for the new stuff? Of course, <laughs> that is my sound. You know, Jeff Beck has his thing, and most certainly like uh, Jimmy Page and and Hendrix and those guys. And I stumbled onto my own kind of a tone sound too. So, but I've always been like a tone nut too, a massive fan of of. Uh, Jeff Beck because of his tone. Video, sorry, video for the right side of the wrong. I wanted to ask you a bit yeah. about the video because uh, I think Stephen was telling me his little Frankenstein stuff going on there. On uh, right side of wrong? Yeah. There's a little bit of weirdness. Yeah, that's, that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how much he, he told you. There's a, Frankenstein was a good movie too. Boris, he, was, he did a good, but uh, back to my video. Yeah, there's a, uh, the right side of wrong, like if you have two sides, let's say the warriors and the, the batters, right? 
and they both think they're fighting for the right cause. There's really, if they cross over, then switch sides, they're going to think like, well, maybe, maybe, you know what I mean? It's like, well, maybe they're right. No, maybe they were right. No, well, maybe they're, you know, but there's no right set of wrong. I got some ideas. I mean, I got a lot of ideas for the, for the, for the video that I think are going to really take you deep into it to go like, oh, that's just wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Not right side of it, but just some some cool some cool visuals. I love visuals. I would love to have an animator just animate what's in my brain. Oh you yeah, know? yeah. Because if I did, I think nobody would do live videos anymore. <laughs> I love animated videos. That's kind of like how the gorillas did their stuff, you know. Yes, I like that stuff. Mm, yeah, me too. It's un, it's un, you know it's unlimited. You could do a lot of stuff for green screen too. Because I'm going to do a lot of green screening on this as well. You know, I can put myself anywhere in the world, you know, at the snap of my finger. Like, it's going to be not old school. <laughs> what would you say is the best music advice that you've received and who gave it to you? I can only say what's probably pretty much 90% of musicians say. It's like, don't stop. Don't quit. Better if you're single, but, you know, <laughs> you know, your wife and kids have got two jobs to do if you really want to do it. But usually it's, God, it's, it's tough for me to say it and be not be mean. It's, but, but once you do that, you're kind of locked into that because you know you've got your family that you love dearly and you provide for them and stuff. But if you're a single guy, go for it. Mm. Have a girlfriend, whatever. <laughs> but play, 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 practice, practice, practice. And I would say don't try to be like anyone or copy like play a cover song or, or do this or do this, be you. Because when you start writing that song, where do you want to go with it? Any way you want. Anywhere. Anywhere, it's yours. Take it wherever. As the Eagles say, they'll remember. <laughs> right? Keep an open mind. Keep working. And I don't know, progressing. Don't stop learning. I'm 72 and I'm still learning and trying to take me other places. I don't know. I mean, I'm working working now on ideas for the second record. If I get if I live that long, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm working right now on my second thing with some ideas and stuff, and it's like what I'm hearing is that another step further. This is something I like to ask everyone as well. Have you uh have you had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Only when I was high. <laughs> oh, what was that? <laughs> I had these with what I have AS right. To stay on tour with the pain, I would take opiates, right? And so being off a tour, I was already hooked on these crappy things and living by myself and nobody around. I couldn't drive because of my AS and stuff. And I got really horribly addicted to these things. That's when I started seeing things. Always seven people or beings in my house all the time. If it was an alien holding down my arms and legs and another alien kind of looking at me and a doctor's head pokes through the ceiling and goes, there's nothing we can do for him. That's what happened to me one time. Holy shit. And, uh, I don't know what they call them, but they, they were female, feline, cat women that would come at me and, and like almost like, a, what's his name, Captain Fantastic or whatever he is with the stripes on. And stuff. Yeah. And with the star on the belt. 
some of that happened, some other things that would happen. I mean, it was like I was a sick guy, I was sick. There would be, uh, like I say, seven entities. One, and sometimes they were like angry indigenous people that were here before us, and they were mad. And so, you know, that kind of stuff. They lived in my closet. Now that's pretty whack. I could write a story about it. Probably. Yeah, you could. I'm listening. <laughs> it was pretty, I mean, I knew that it wasn't real, but I still saw it. I don't know what I would have done, but I knew, I knew that it couldn't be real. How long ago was this? Ooh, right before the Red, White, and Crew mm. album came. Right, right around that time. I was a pretty sick boy. <laughs> now, do you consider yourself religious or spiritual or anything like that? Sometimes I, I, I think about like karma or that kind of a thing. I mean, my father was a Baptist minister. I never got into that. I never have. My father never ever pushed anything on me like that. And so it's like, you know, I believe like, like I say, in karma or, or that kind of stuff. But as far as like a single entity, I'll say, to watch over everything, can't do that. Maybe I'm whatever it is. <laughs> well, Mick, I, just to put a bow on this thing here, uh, I want you to tell folks uh, where they can find you, what you got on the horizon, and all that good stuff. Get your album coming up, of course. <laughs> yeah, I got I got that coming out uh, January 23rd. And I have two more singles, Right Side of Wrong and Undone. And what I plan doing that, those songs like that, is to show the progression of here's different styles of music and where I'm heading with this kind of stuff. As far as touring, uh, I'm not so good at it anymore. I mean, travel-wise... I mean, if, if I could just snap my fingers and be there, you know, that's that's not a problem. But I can't do that, you know. Flying for 12 hours in a jet to go somewhere else and getting on your bus and riding eight hours, and, uh, it's a little rough. Well, uh, Mick, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. You have a great uh, rest of your day, man. Thanks, Justin. You too. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mick. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>